chillin' and uh, you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and the accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is sponsored by Four Data, a Canberra-based company that is committed to ensuring business owners have reliable and professional IT services. I'm a client of Four Data. I use their website hosting services, and I'm also reducing my email spam with their secure email hosting service. As a special offer to the Joyful Frugalista podcast listeners, Four Data will provide wherever you are website hosting at twelve dollars a month and up to two hours initial free migration service, valued at $300. Find them online at number 4data.com.au. 4data, they fix IT. Hello, Frugalisters, and welcome. Today I have a very special guest and someone who has some amazing insights that I can't wait to share with you all. Please welcome Dr. Kirsten Peterson. Welcome, Kirsten. Thank you very much, Serena. It's a pleasure to be here. It is absolute pleasure. You have so much wisdom to share. Kirsten is a registered psychologist, indoor sport and exercise psychologist, and organizational coach for her company, Kirsten Peterson Consulting. Drawing on her 23 years of international experience as a sport and performance psychologist for Olympic athletes, I know, Olympic, so cool, right? Coaches and teams (laughs) in the US and Australia. Kirsten understands how high performance works. She was a team psychologist at seven Olympic Games. Oh my God, that my mind just boggles at that. And has worked with numerous sports, most recently with the Australian National Women's Water Polo and Rowing Programs, as well as USA Rugby. That just sounds so amazingly fabulous, Kirsten. Hi, thank you. How did you get into sports psychology? That is a very good question. And a story I love to tell because I was your typical, completely directionless college student grasping about for what it was that I was supposed to be doing. I did have, I liked psychology, um, but didn't really think of me in that space. But I was also an avid athlete uh, for my time, which was before the really, the big explosion of women's sport that has since happened in the last 20 years or so. Mm. But I was a softball player and just lost the ability to pitch. So I was a pitcher and I could not, I all of a sudden in my college career, couldn't throw strikes anymore, which is kind of important if you want success as a pitcher. Yeah. And in losing that and not really having any obvious physical reason for it, I really found it profoundly distressing that the best that my coach could do is tell me to relax. And I thought there's got to be more to this than that. Mm. And that I do not want anyone to feel the way I did, which a lot of athletes experienced, a lot of my identity was wrapped up in being the softball pitcher. And when all of a sudden, and pretty suddenly it was taken away from me, thankfully I was able to play other positions on the team so I didn't completely lose the ability to play sport. But I was profoundly aware of this is very important to me. There's got to be some way of helping. And when I found out there was a field of sports psychology, I was like drawn to it hook, line, and sinker and really didn't look back just jumped into it and figured out how to do it, and here I am. That must have just been so frustrating. One day you're able to pitch straight, and then suddenly you can't, and then I guess trying so hard, which I can imagine you would have, to try and fix this problem. 
Yeah, and that, therein lies the problem because often if you, if there's something that's not happening, what do you do? You try harder to do it. And I think, although to this day I'm really a crap pitcher, so I never really healed myself, not that I needed to really. But anyway, I think trying harder to get somewhere is often not the answer. And it's kind of sitting back and relaxing and allowing the ability to come back. And I think had I been able to give myself that and really have be patient, I think that would have been the key. Well, I was really amazed when we first spoke about how much of your work goes into the self-compassion space. When I thought about sports psychology, I always thought about like winning at every cost and just visualizing that winning moment and everything about winning. But that doesn't seem to be your approach as much. It's, it kind of goes back to the last point around when you try so hard for one thing, it often proves maddeningly elusive. And it's, it's, you know, we think about sport only in terms of that outcome, the win. But you think, especially for Olympic athletes, Olympics comes once every four years. And we had a saying when I worked for the Olympic Committee in the U.S., the Olympics aren't really every four years, they're every day. Mm. And so it's how do you be an Olympian every day? And that, that does mean if this is part of my identity every single day and I'm trying to be better every single day, I better find a good way and a sustainable way to do that. It's a long road to get to self-compassion here, but where, what I'm getting at is our relationship to ourselves as performers is critical to our ability to sustain the effort it takes to train day after day after day, to be on the razor edge between doing the very best I can success and failure. Because if you're pushing to get better every day, you're always pushing on the edge of failure. Mm -hmm. If you're only defining your well-being by success and half the time you're failing because that's part of the process and you're not nice to yourself as you do that, (laughs) you're in for a world of hurt. And yeah, there's the recipe. So the, the book I refer most to athletes or copy the most chapters out of is a book entitled Self-Compassion. Wow. And I think all of that makes so much sense. You were talking about how Olympics happen once every four years, but of course, we're in a really, really unique year this year. Mm-hmm. can only begin to imagine how difficult that would be for many elite athletes. Oh, you've opened a Pandora box with that one. I, <laughs> um, <laughs> Only it's been front of mind for me because I do still work some in sport and have observed exactly what you're saying that, first of all, I had a sport put this to me just this week in this way that we've never ever in the history of Olympic sport had a five-year Olympic cycle. The Olympics are either done and you're into the next one or they've been canceled, but we've never had an extension. And so Mm. there's no rule book for this. So we have a lot of athletes who were looking to make this Olympics their last one and have since left the sport because even another year has been hard. Normally, you have four years to make that up. And so there's there's this bit of an exodus out of sport, but then we have athletes who have lost. They're not competing right now. So what's kind of the point? So how do we reinvent purpose? How do I find... I'm so used to structure and goal setting and in my... We work hard throughout our mm-hmm. athletes' career to help them be in that space. And then, especially during lockdown, when they were then living in their parents' basement and had no schedule whatsoever for that, for at least a period of time, there was this a massive amount of decision fatigue going on where every day they would have to decide, when am I going to train, as opposed to being told when you train. 
and had to use a whole new skill set. So I am actually developing programming that I'm now sharing with sports to help them thrive a little bit better in these times because so many, I see so many people kind of banging themselves on the head trying to do harder what they're used to doing. So my program's called When Grit's Not Enough because I think sometimes it's not about getting harder, but it's about backing away and thinking, how can we really do this for the best way possible? Yeah, I can see that would be really, really needed when so much mm. of your life is around a, a schedule and a routine and then suddenly that's just taken away. But yet you've got to keep at peak performance level. Must be very hard. Well, we also try to get help athletes and coaches see that we're looking at the Olympics, which are now just shy of a year away. We can afford to take our foot off the brake a little bit. Like we don't have to stay at peak levels, nor is it very healthy. You're going to need a bit of time to recover. Mm. Where I see the brittleness is I'm trying to stay on this trajectory when there's no competition coming up for nine months. I don't know how the selection process is going to work, but we have to sort of be flexible in that space and recognize we don't have to be great right now mm. because we want to be developing and then know when intelligently to turn up the gears to get great because that's that's kind of how preparation is what works. You kind of you, you climb up and then you taper down and you climb up a little higher and you taper down and we need to get that, that kind of rhythm right. And I don't know that we're hitting it because it's just been so un, unprecedented. Yeah, everything is so unprecedented. And you've touched on this a bit, but this whole concept about winning and success being winning, which I guess sport's all about that, right? It's all about who gets the gold, who gets the silver, who gets the bronze. But how do you help athletes feel okay when they don't achieve that? That's a great question. And often, you know, athletes unintentionally get this wrong because they come into sport wanting to win. And yeah, that's what we celebrate, right? Mm -hmm. But nevertheless... You know, there's not more than one winner. It's really a zero-sum game in sport. And so if we just do the math, and I'm terrible at math, so I won't go farther than that, to say that we're going to lose a lot more often than we win. So if winning is the only thing, there's a lot of suffering in store for us. So so I think this could kind of link to a question or just a point we were making earlier around how do I find joy and accomplishment in the process? Mm. How do I own what I have been able to accomplish. Maybe I have personal goals that are in my control that I can take pride in. Because the thing about winning is that although athletes love to say I control winning, unfortunately, you don't control the person you're up against and whether they're just having a better day than you. So I would argue that we don't control the outcome. We don't control the win or lose. We increase the chances by the way we behave. Meaning, you know, is our training good? Is our attitude good? Our, is our strategy good? And that we absolutely need to own and value those things that we control along the way. And if winning happens, great. And if losing happens, we can be disappointed but not devastated. I had some of your thoughts in my head the other week when I had a very distraught eight-year-old son after his rugby league game and I know we've spoken about this before but my children have both taken up rugby league this year much to my surprise hmm. and my youngest it's turned out he's actually quite good at it and this is you know his first season so it's early, early times anyway one week he scored five tries which is pretty phenomenal and he was very proud of himself and then what happened was one of his family members not me said that she'd give him $20 if he scored a try. I can hear you sucking in a breath already and you know where this is going. $20 mm. if he scored a try in the next match. 
So the next match came along and I could see what the coach had done because they're all under eights, they're all little kids and he obviously wanted to change the playing positions to make it fair for the other kids. So he was playing in a first receiver role where basically he wasn't in a position to get many tries. It would have been very hard. Mm. So he didn't score a try that game and he just melted down. He was just crying for hours. Um, And actually, he'd actually played really well. Like, he'd actually been tackling really well. He'd been defending really well. He'd been working really well as a team. He was actually, I thought, actually a better player than when he was scoring five tries. But in his Mm. mind, he'd been told that success was all about getting a try, and he was devastated. Yeah. Yeah. You you nailed that one in the sense that success was defined for him. And isn't it interesting that that's, I assume, an adult who did that? Um, (laughs) Sadly, yes. We, it's so interesting, the whole concept of, you know, kids in sport and how unintentionally parents can make sport into something that the kids aren't seeing the same way. On, on the one hand, we have parents who would say, let's not keep score so, because we don't want the kids to get all involved in the outcomes. And like, who are you kidding? The, <laughs> the kids will come off the field going, well, I, you know, I know I'm not supposed to know this, but we lost 5-3. Yeah, they'll count. <laughs> But the idea that there's something valuable in helping kids actually accurately process winning and losing and understanding it's part of life. You know, if we are trying to pretend that it doesn't exist when you're eight and then shove it down your throat when you're 18, how how have we served our children in that way? Mm. But the other piece that you're talking to is then this idea that, you know, you get into the uh, the extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. And if I'm doing it for the love of the sport, that's healthy and sustainable. But when I get into the extrinsic motivation, doing it for the money, the recognition, the you know, things that are outside of me, those may then make my joy about this conditional. And you take those away and I'm my tendency to persist and thrive actually becomes a little bit more brittle. Yeah, it's a lot more stress, mm-hmm. isn't it? It goes from, well, I'm running around having fun, I'm scoring a few tries. I'm feeling pretty good about it too. Oh, I don't reach that target. I'm going to let other people down. That's a whole other area about sort of the expectations. And once that, yeah, that rears its head, you know, there's a whole heap of work, as Australians would say, around helping athletes manage and understand that, you know, how expectations can, they can control, you know, we can learn a different relationship with that kind of thinking, but it doesn't come naturally to us. And if it gets under our skin a little bit, we have left Olympic gold medals on the table because of crippling expectations that I've got to do this for my country as opposed to I'm just getting into a swimming pool and swimming as fast as I can. Yeah, you're right. There's a whole other layer. We've been talking Mm. a lot about the obstacles, I guess, to winning or success and Mm. talking about success just in a general term. And I know it's a lot more complicated than that. But I know you've worked with a lot of successful athletes. What then are some of the key qualities, including mindset, that these really top elite successful, in the terms of winning in this sense, these mm. athletes display? Yeah, if we go beyond mindset, first of all, you've got to have all the levers, you've got to have the strength, you've got to have the size to be able to execute whatever sport you're in. Sports psychology or the mental aspect of the game comes in closer to the top than it does the bottom in the sense that if you don't have the body for it, all the sports psych isn't going to save you. Just like if you're taking care of yourself, if you're not sleeping, going to see your psychologist for help with your mental state isn't going to help. You know, Mm. we need to take care of generally our physicality first. And I'm not saying ignore the mental side, but that there's many basic things we can be doing, whether we want to succeed in sport, 
or succeed in life that have to do with all the stuff your mom taught you when you were growing up about sleep, about eating, you know, about making sure you, you're nice to people because we're social animals and all that. But having said that, then we get into the kind of the mindset of what allows somebody to be really successful because you certainly see people with all the physical attributes mm. not able to, per, say, perform under pressure or are fragile in other ways. And so I would say that you go from good to great athletes, great athletes take responsibility for the job of being an elite athlete. Mm. They're smart about recognizing when they need to rely on others to help them, and that's okay. Like I see rookie athletes arguing with the coaches if they know better. But it, <laughs> and then, but as at a certain point, every elite athlete, every great athlete, kind of makes a break with the person who's been mentoring them in some way because they, it's almost like they break the mold or break the curriculum, and they know themselves really well, better than anybody else. But you. I see a lot of athletes thinking they do when they really don't. And it's the ability to find joy and motivation in everything about what you're doing so that you want to train every day and you bring your best mindset to training every day. Because I, mm. I see athletes, good athletes can sometimes cruise through training where they just show up in body but not really in mind. Great athletes are like, 24-7 students of their game. Um, so they're very good at that and have a impeccable learning mindset where they're always kind of picking up win or lose, what did I learn and how do I apply that to get better? So I don't, I don't stop just because I'm best in the world because there's always somewhere farther to go. So it's not just about beating everybody else, but it's being a better version of myself. Wow, that's pretty deep. And I know we're talking here about sports. <laughs> But I'm assuming that there's application to other aspects as well. And I was just thinking as you were speaking that I find myself almost self-sabotaging myself as well. Like just before my mm. book came out, I got actually quite scared and there was part of me that was like, oh, do I want this? Can I stop this? I was just getting really a bit cant cantankerous, if that makes sense, because it was it's a bit mm. scary actually when you yep. know you're about to shine with something. You worry about other people and how they'll react to it and a whole range of things. There's so much wisdom in what you just said, and it's reminding me of a quote by Marianne Williamson, who talks about the sort of, many people think they have the fear of failure, but it's really the fear, the fear of success. Mm. And who are you not to be the person that you are meant to be? And it's a beautiful quote, and I wish I, if I was a better interviewee, I'd have it at the tip of my tongue. But Marianne Williamson, look up that quote. But I think, too... I'm also reminded of, do you know the social scientist named Brene Brown? Yes, yes. She has like, and it's it's knocked itself out of the park, a, a TED Talk on vulnerability and then a follow-up on shame. And she talked about how after talking about vulnerability so movingly, they said, hey, we want to put this on TED. And she found out at the time it had 400 views and she stopped leaving her house because she was so shocked and embarrassed and was telling a friend and the friend said something like, you're a terrible role model for vulnerability. <laughs> you can't leave your house when, <laughs> you know, this is happening. And it is funny how we have this paradoxical reaction to success or a fear. Like I know when I, I did an online, so I'm a, this is me too. I, I did an online learning event, which meant earlier this year, right when COVID hit, that I, for the first time, was really branding it with my name. And I hired an event management company to help spread the word. 
And I was so afraid. And then, you know, after it was all over LinkedIn for a while and my little world. And but I had to get used to sort of that sucker punch feeling that I imagine you felt when your book is out there thinking, yeah. Oh my God, what's gonna happen? But I realized after a couple of days, people were just really nice to me and I wasn't even big enough to troll. You know, like what was my fear here? <laughs> I'm I'm yeah. la- I'm laughing because I was just being trolled in the Daily Mirror. So I had an oh, article, dear. and actually I didn't write it. They just picked it up. They picked bits up from things I'd previously written and from my website, mm. and they put this together. This profile, single mum turned millionaire, and and all these people saying, "Oh well, she looks really well nourished, doesn't she?" <laughs> and, oh, oh, she's so stingy, and her poor husband and her poor kids, and so regiment. Oh, it, was, it was actually quite funny. We had a bit of a laugh. But yeah, so it's lucky you're not troll because when you are, it could be pretty no, terrible. I can, I can only imagine I feel for you because I don't know what goes on in people's minds that they think they can be so unkind and mean to people. But that's a whole nother podcast, I'm sure. That is a whole nother podcast. But we've been hmm. talking obviously about sports psychology and then moving more towards this concept of self-sabotage. And I know hmm. you do a lot of business coaching. So how does all of this sports psychology translate then to business and being successful in business, creating abundance in our lives? That's a big question. So I'll try to, I'm just thinking about the kinds of issues I see in business. And a lot of them are, are similar in the sense that it can often be our mindset around who we are and what we're capable of that either allows us to kind of grow and be more of who we are or less. And so I spend a fair amount of my time, and this would happen with athletes too, where it took a while for them to see themselves as a contender, much less a winner. Like, mm-hmm. I, do I even belong here? And can I walk in, talk a lot about faking it till you make it. And I see a lot of that in the corporate sector, fortunately, particularly with women who this is the kinds of things we've been talking about, kind of, you know, I'm used to sitting small. I'm used to just doing my job and getting on with it. I'm very operational. I'm not very good in the strategy space, but actually I am, but I still see myself as an operational person. And mm. so helping to challenge what the fears are to, you know, like what's, what's happening. And specifically, like when I find people in this space of, going up and trying to get out of their comfort zone into a place where they haven't been before, like doubt will creep in Mm. and doubt inevitably comes in the form of questions. What if I can't do this? What if I fail? And it's our mind in some pretty unhelpful way, actually trying to help us by, you know, anticipating the worst so that we're prepared. But the fact is we rarely actually take the time to answer those questions. What if I fail? Well, I'll get up and look at what happened and I'll figure out a different way to do it next time. <laughs> I guess that's what but, an athlete does if he or she doesn't win the race. Although they will be besieged with the same questions and you kind of have to walk through that same process with them. If I lose, if I don't win the Olympic gold medal, guess what? The sun's going to come up tomorrow. I'm going to put my pants on one leg at a time and my parents will still love me. Mm. And being able to kind of, A, answer the question so that they stop the worry loop kind of can you'll keep doing it but if you keep answering the questions it starts to lose its power the other piece around this for that translates both for sport and i see the corporate world is this idea that we think that we we success means not doubting Mm. 
And there is not an Olympic champion on the planet who didn't go into that Olympic final with a bit of doubt. And so what I would say, because what an athlete will do is say, I'm not supposed to be doubting. Here I am at the Olympic final. So by doubting, that means I'm not capable of being an Olympic champion. So I start to undermine my own performance before I've even gone out there. And I see people saying like, oh, in order to be successful, I can't have doubt. Well, yes, you can. You just, you, you allow doubt in, you welcome doubt, and you say, I'm still here to perform. So doubt you can hang out here, but you're just not going to drive the car. Liz Gilbert in the book, Big Magic, has some beautiful imagery around this, if anyone's interested in really reading a creative writer talk about crippling doubt. She's your girl. She's the one that wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And we talked after that in a TED Talk, a beautiful TED Talk, by the way, on what it was like to be this author in the aftermath of like this huge international bestseller where everybody was saying, oh, aren't you so afraid then that any book you write now is not going to be nearly as successful as the one you just wrote? (laughs) How do you live with that? So we all think doubt comes after failure, but sometimes the biggest doubts we have are after the biggest successes. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to it. So this idea that doubt is part of the human condition. And if we think, we write this rule in our head that I cannot doubt my myself and succeed. We're just limiting ourselves. We mm-hmm. learn to live with it. And by learning to live with it in a, in a lighthearted way, ah, oh, there's doubt again. Hey, doubt, welcome to the party. We allow its right to exist because fighting it is futile. Mm-hmm. And but we, we take a little of the punch out of it and we get on with things. So I think we can be courageous and successful and have doubt in the back of our mind. That's the way it works. Yeah, that's big, sort of recognizing all aspects of the human condition and not denying those. So part of who we are, they're completely natural emotions. And somehow, though, we have this idea in our heads that certain emotions are just not acceptable. You know, if you know, the CEO in the corner of you know, the C-suite doesn't feel X, Y, Z, well, they're great. <laughs> yes, I'm sure he or she does. They just don't talk and about it. And if they don't, we worry about their mental health because there are certain presidents of certain countries in the world who actually could stand with a little bit more doubt in their lives. um... (laughs) Yeah, perhaps. It's interesting that when people start to open up about this vulnerability, how they share, like I once had an Mm. opportunity to, as part of a a personal development thing that my, one of my bosses was trying to sit in with a meeting where one of the deputy secretaries of my former department was. Now, this was Mm. the first time they'd done this sort of thing. I was the first person sort of sitting there. And it was kind of a bit awkward because I was the note taker and there were all these senior people from other agencies talking about some very big issues. And it actually wasn't an issue that was my normal policy issue. So I didn't actually know Mm. what the issues were to start with. It was outside of Mm. my remit. And then I'm in this room with all these really senior people and I'm like the fly on the wall. And it was really weird. And then I shared afterwards how I was glad to have that opportunity, but it was actually weird in the positioning sort of sense. Where do I sit? How do I act? What do I say? How do I respond to all of this? And once I actually began to open up to that, it was actually quite fascinating how other people said, yeah, it is actually quite weird when you're in that situation (laughs) and I'd find it a bit scary too. Yeah, yeah, because it is a bit. I love that idea of leading with a bit of vulnerability and that when you do that, especially leaders, and if it's appropriate, I, I think it's inappropriate vulnerability, which is off topic. But if, if, if something's happening and people are feeling unsafe or scared when you can kind of own what's in the room from a position of power, it, it enables and gives other people permission to do the same. And that's, to me, where the, where the rich, much more authentic conversations happen. 
Now, I want to ask you a next question, and I know what the answer is going to be, and I know I'm going to laugh, and that is, do you have, you know it's coming, do you have a frugalista tip to share? For the interest of everyone listening, I had to ask Serena what this was, because I did not understand what a frugalista tip was, and so when I realized it's a tip to save money and be frugal, I had to admit that I don't have much of that, that kind of DNA in my body, but I am thankfully married in a, in the yin-yang way of marriages to one of the most frugal people on the planet. And my frugalista tip is to marry a man who keeps his underwear from high school and still wears it as a cost-saving measure because his, <laughs> his lack of underwear. <laughs> we can go on trips now for the money we've saved from underwear purchases. So there you go. There you go. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no no comment on that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to add into the underwear situation in our household other than to say that I'm frugal. So there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and it's been interesting, actually, how I can feel very sanctimonious about my own frugality in these times because where am I going to spend money? I can thank the pandemic for actually making me a much more noble and frugal person. There's my tip. Let's have a global pandemic more often so all travel is curtailed and our inability to go out to cafes and, and buy things in stores really goes down and then I can be as frugal as anybody. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe not if that's okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Yes. No, I, yeah, like I'm being a bit tongue in cheek because obviously who wants a pandemic? I know, I know. <laughs> well, thank you so much. The big question now is how can people find more about what you do and connect with your company? Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. So my company name is Kirsten Peterson Consulting, which I appreciate is a mouthful for anyone. You don't have to say it out loud. But if you just put those those words into Google, my website will come up and I am I consider myself kind of a change agent kind of coach helping people go from good to great in that performance space and recognize how do you tap into your inner performer. And I do kind of teamwork and culture building, just like I did in sport with with co-acting teams and would be delighted to help anybody who needs help in that space. Thank you so much. Now, if you have loved this podcast as much as I have been part of it, please make sure to like, share and comment, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts. Thank you very much. You are more than welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to The Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. you got to accentuate the positive eliminate the negative latch on to the affirmative. Don't mess with Mr. In-Between.